Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Reminder before we get to this week's episode that we need to get our social media followings up, and you guys need to help us do that. We want to get to 1,000 subscribers on YouTube and 1,000 followers on Instagram and Twitter. So please, spread the word of the Hazard Ground. Tell people to go and follow us on those sites. We have a great Facebook group and a great Facebook following, but we want to get the other ones up as well so we can continue to spread the word, and we need your guys' help with doing that. So if you haven't already followed us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter, please do so. And again, spread the word. Have everybody else follow us as well. Reminder about our promotion with Amazon. We know that like Valentine's Day is coming up. It's a good gift-giving season, so go Go to our website, hazardground.com, and then click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. And when you get to Amazon, you can do all your normal shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and we'll donate it right back to some of the great charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. And just one more note before we get to this week's guest. We want to let everybody know this episode was recorded with our guest before the holidays. The album that you hear us reference during the episode just dropped on December 20th. So just want to remind everybody that the album is now out for download and CD purchase. Please go check out the band Silence and Light and hear all about this week's guest and the great work he's done in his post-military life. And now let's get on with this week's episode. And joining us this week is the return of a guest from episode 58. He's a former Army Ranger and Delta Force operator. He was part of the famous story we've told many times here on the podcast of Black Hawk Down. He currently is a musician and a part of the band Silence and Light. They have just finished recording their first album, and we wanted to spend some time catching up with him since we last spoke with him and another band member. He is Brad Thomas, and he joins us once again on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Brad, welcome. Good to talk to you again, brother. Hey, what's going on, Mark? Thank you very much for having me and for uh, for supporting the cause. No, absolutely. Listen, I mean, it, it's great to catch up. You know, I mean, we are approaching like 150 episodes of this thing. I forget what number we're at right now, to be perfectly honest. But, you know, uh, it's it's always great to go back and catch up with where people have been since we started this thing. So certainly a lot to, a lot to catch up with you uh, with the music side of things and the band. And, um, just give it for the people who may not have listened to the first episode, give us kind of the background of how you went from the military to the music world. Let's see. So I, I was always involved in, in music from as early as I can remember. Um, you know, started playing the piano. My parents took me to a few concerts at a very young age. And just that exposure was something that, you know, flipped the switch in me that that was what I wanted to do. And and basically pursued that all the way up until the point of joining the military. And, uh, you know, when I was 12 or 13, started getting into, you know, Rangers in Vietnam books and studies and observation group books and uh, CIA in Vietnam, all that kind of stuff. Vietnam was like a huge thing for me. And I probably got turned on to that just by being interested in things like Woodstock and understanding, you know, the scene at the times and such great music came from the 1960s. And uh, so anyway, that that kind of led me down a road of starting to play the piano at, you know, four or five 
and then, you know, moving on to the saxophone and picking up a guitar about, you know, age 12, 13 and, and teaching myself how to play that. And it just kind of went and I took it to the point of, you know, everything was on track and, and doing well and had the right group of guys. And then some drama happened and everything fell apart. And, you know, within a few months I was joining the army. So that's, that's kind of, you know, my background of why music was always for me. And then, you know, once I went through the Ranger indoctrination program, so I went to basic training, uh, AIT for infantry, I went to airborne school, and then I went through the Ranger indoctrination program and got to third Ranger battalion in April of 91. And then, uh, you know, it, it took from the time I joined to the time I kind of got back into music. It was about an 18 month period. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that was something that I was, I was jonesing for it, you know, but I didn't really have the infrastructure to, to have stuff or have, you know, gear or things like that. So, uh, but, but anyway, I kind of picked it back up there and then took it, took it with me and kind of kept it in my life, you know, the whole remainder of the time. And once I got in a situation when I was at Delta where I could actually had some time to re-explore, I started it back up then and, um, you know, kind of been pushing it ever since. So I retired in 2010 and, uh, you know, basically went through struggling with figuring out the best way for me to kind of give back to the community. And it was something that my wife and I talked about uh, every Friday night, like on a, on a date night and in one week, you know, it would be like, I'm running for office and I should do something <laughs> more public that way. And then, you know, the next week it was doing something different. And one day she just said, I've got a room in my house that's just full of gear. And uh, she said, you know, it's a, it's a shame that you're not doing more with this. And it didn't click when she said it, but, you know, within a day or two later I was driving and I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put together a group, you know, of people. I don't know what it was going to be at the time, but I'm going to put together a group of people. I want to write and release music and take the proceeds of which and give those to some charitable organizations that directly impact the first responder and veteran community. And that's essentially what I've done. And to that end, your whole band is former veterans, correct? Silence and Light is all five former veterans? Yeah. And uh, actually, you know, some some guys that are still currently serving in different capacities. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it's actually a really cool thing. You know, we've made it a priority. Everybody is down with the message. And, you know, the music is, you know, I'll toot my own horn, but I think it's pretty freaking good. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's something that, you know, people can listen to and they understand where it's coming from. It's basically us taking negative experiences and things and trauma that we've dealt with during our careers and you know, doing something positive with it. And that, right. that's kind of my point at being semi-public is to say, I've lived the dark days. I was in Black Hawk Down. I've been a part of countless other engagements, you know, in other parts of the world. And if I can do this, anybody can do it, you know, find a healthy, creative way to get rid of some of that baggage and some of that bad stuff. And, and if I can do it, you can do it too, no matter what. All right. Let's, Pause on music for one second. I do want to back up uh, because in doing some research on you since we last spoke, uh, I stumbled upon something that, well, there's a couple of things you and I have in common that you probably don't know. Um, your first concert that you went to, do you want to divulge who that was? 
<laughs> Barry Manilow. And I only say that because I am the biggest closet Barry Manilow fan. And it's all because <laughs> of my mother. She loved Barry Manilow. I mean, yeah. like, it was a routine thing. This is back when young kids might not know what these, you know, the LPs, the big 45 record, the 33 and 45 records. She used to have a yeah. Manilow magic thing. And she'd play it relentlessly. And so it was always on in the house. And so I grew up with every Barry Manilow song there is. And as embarrassing as this may be in 2019, I, I, I still have all the CDs. Like, you know, I still, still listen to it from time. It's all on my iPod, too. Hey, he's an incredibly talented guy. <laughs> and most, most people don't know this about him, but he, he worked, you know, back when they would literally go into an office building and write jingles and songs um, you know, he was one of those guys way back and there's a certain term for it that I can't remember, but he wrote all these jingles, like the Dr. Pepper jingle. Really? Um, yeah, he's, he, he did a medley on a live album that I had as a kid that was all of his jingles. And if, if you Google it, you'll find it. And it's, it's insane. The amount of jingles and things like that, that he's been a part of in commercials that were a part of you know, the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Well, to that end, he literally writes the songs that make the whole world sing, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he does. But uh, I kind of, you know, it's interesting. That's kind of where I picked it up. I, I saw Barry Manilow. I saw Mac Davis, who was kind of a country guy, and I wasn't super into, but he was very popular at the time. I saw the Beach Boys, and I saw Chicago. And that, oh, wow. was, over, that was over a period of about two months in the summer of maybe 1976 or 1977. I can't remember, but you know, that was, that was something that as soon as I saw it, I was like, that's what I want to do. And, uh, it just didn't, it didn't time out that way. Maybe my timing is now. Right. Um, and then the other thing I read that we have in common is that you saw a band named Aaron Anthrax, which, you know, growing up in our age was a popular band at a place in Baltimore where I spent many, many, many a night drinking, uh, called <laughs> Hammerjacks. Oh Yeah. Hammerjacks, yeah. for those who don't know, in Baltimore was like one of the premier back into you have to go into like the 90s, you know, time frame. But it was one of the premier like not it was it was first a music place, but then it became like a dance club and a nightclub. And it was just a great hangout spot, a very popular hangout spot in Baltimore. It was it was one of the original facilities that literally you could go from room to room. They had multiple rooms yeah. that, were, yeah. that were gigantic and it was in the old warehousing district of like the inner harbor yep. in baltimore so you could see a concert in one room and and you know maybe house music in the next and, yeah yeah and then go to a dance club in another place and there were bars everywhere and it was it was an amazing thing i i saw them uh i think the day before i graduated from high school in uh in 87 so june of 87 wow unreal stuff i just thought that connection was kind of quirky uh so and i figured, I, figured I, i'd share it with you Still have the hearing damage from it too. Yeah. <laughs> hands down, hands down, the loudest show I've ever been to, and I've been to a lot of shows. Uh, since we have last spoke to you, by the way, you know we interviewed Jeff Struker here on the Hazard Ground. Oh, very cool. Yeah, he he still speaks very fondly of you. Very cool. Yeah, I haven't. I tried to connect with him. I I saw a social media or somebody somebody posted something. I think it was Eagles and Angels. Uh, my buddy Tom Flanagan, who does the hats with the flags on them with uh, camo material from, from uniforms that were worn while deployed. Mm -hmm. uh, really, really cool hats. But I think he did one for Jeff and I tried to hit him up through DM to let him know I was going to be down that way and uh, wanted to see him, but I never heard back. He may have his DM stuff turned off, but Jeff, if you're listening or do listen, 
shoot me a shoot me a direct message, man. Would love to would love to meet up with you. Yeah, and and for those who aren't connecting the dots here between Jeff Struker from Black Hawk Down and Brad, if you see the movie, there's that scene in the movie uh, where you know you're standing outside and you're telling Jeff that you can't go back into the fight and. Jeff totally understands, but, uh, you know, he looks back in the rearview mirror and sees you hop back on the vehicle uh, and, and get back in as you guys ride back into uh, the Bakara Market in downtown Mogadishu. When you see that scene, does it bring up any emotions for you? Does it does it conjure up any any thoughts and feelings still all these years later? Uh, it's just being scared to death, you know, and, and I think the thing for me, there are some inaccuracies about it. Yeah. There are some ina- inaccuracies of things that, that Jeff still talks about in terms of my status at the time and having children and things like that. And that wasn't necessarily the case. And, uh, and I'm not an asthmatic, so I, I don't use an inhaler. <laughs> um, that, that was an, another guy named Steve Anderson. So they, they did a lot of combination of characters. I think what I really would want people to know about that interaction and the way that it went down was that, you know, we didn't have communications. Nobody knew what was going on other than the leadership. And I was kind of a freelance uh, spec four Ranger tab spec four with a saw gun and was just getting busy, you know, gun all afternoon. And I didn't know when we returned to the hangar, I just had my, my best friend at the time, Dominic pillow was killed. Yep. I saw that whole engagement and I was under the impression that the mission was over. I didn't even know that we were necessarily, um, you know, returning to the hang. I had no clue what I was doing. I'm just, I'm just there along for the ride. And the volume of gunfire made it difficult for even verbal communication to happen. And, uh, you know, so when you see that happen in movies, don't believe it because you really can't hear anything. You can kind of look at people's mouths and guess what they're saying, but uh, so when we got back to the hangar, I, I definitely snapped and it was in a fit of rage. And some of my friends that didn't go out on the first uh, the first uh, initial assault, you know, were trying to calm me down. And I was kick, kicking stuff and hitting things and screaming and yelling and pissed off because I thought the mission was over. And at some point, you know, was was trying to even figure out what had happened to my friend who had been killed and and it was like oh hey there's there's a black hawk helicopter that got shot down we got to go back and get it and my my reaction to that was more of this is just a suicide mission this is stupid we don't have any support there's a smarter way to do this but we're going to just go drive around you know trying to figure this out and i had just driven through this so i knew what it was right and it wasn't so much i i don't want to go because I don't believe in that. It was more of, I think this is a really bad idea and we're just going to, we're all going to die today. Everybody's just going to die for, for not for what, but isn't there a better way to skin this cat? And uh, was very frustrated by that. And, And it wasn't until, you know, Jeff and I had the conversation and, and every bit of what he said was true. Hey man, I'm scared to death. I don't want to go out there either. But, you know, there's only one difference between a hero and a coward, and that is a coward. A hero will go do, you know, whatever he needs to go do and be scared doing it. It doesn't matter. So um, I, I knew that I was going back out. It wasn't a question of I can't. It was more a question of this is not the best way to do this. Right. And, and you know, I, I can 
certainly sympathize with that frustration you were feeling. And just a quick anecdote story. You know, I remember uh, I'm, I'm eight days before leaving Iraq in, in 06 and multiple engagements throughout the, you know, the, the, the year plus time and, and, you know, came closer than I ever wanted to be to dying. And I'm doing this one last mission and we get hit with an IED on the way back from going to pick up a New York Times reporter of all things. And we get hit with an IED. And I remember once we got back to, you know, uh, I don't, I'm not sure if you ever deployed to Baghdad or not, but the flying man oh, in, yeah. in Baghdad, once we got inside the, the, the flying man in Baghdad, I literally stood up in the turret. My Iraqi gunner was sitting there because was, it was one of these weird missions where I took all Iraqis with me to go pick up a New York Times reporter. So I was the only American on the, on the convoy. It's me and three uh, trucks full of all Iraqi guys and, and no interpreter. It's just me. It was, a, it was a shit show from start to finish. But long story short, I just remember as soon as we got inside the flying man, I stood up inside the turret and I took my helmet off and I was slamming it on top of the Humvee going, these motherfuckers are still trying to kill me. God, I was cursing and screaming for about 10 minutes straight because – you just get to a point where it's like, how much more of this can we take? Like, like yeah. how much, you know, it, everybody mentally gets to a breaking point if you're in this, if you're in this shit long enough. And, and you know, could not comparing Black Hawk Down to Iraq or anything, but, you know, where I think Iraq was a slog over months, you guys had a lot of intensity in a short amount of time, per se. But I just, I, I, when you said that, it totally made me think of that moment and how frustrated and hangry I was and how I was cursing for 10 minutes straight because I just had to let all that, that out of me, uh, because keeping it inside of me was not going to do anything any good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a, a vocal person. I was never a gray man <laughs> anywhere that I served. Uh, you know, people know me. There's no doubt about that. And, uh, and I'm, I'm super vocal about things when I don't think that they're right. And, you know, it's, it's frustrating. And, and one of the bigger challenges that I faced in the military was sometimes knowing that maybe I had a better way of doing something or thought of a better way of doing something than some of the leadership. And when you get signed up to do things, you know, as a subordinate, you know, that's a very frustrating place to be. And, you know, knowing that maybe you're not executing the plan as good as it could be executed because there's a better way to do it. And uh, that was, that was one of the things that once I got to Delta Delta's mentality with everything is bottoms up. There is nothing that's fed down from the top. It's all very much bottoms up planning. And, you know, the newest guy on the team could say, Hey, I think we should try this and you can implement that. There's no leadership telling you what you have to do or tactically what you can and can't do. Um, you know, that's all up to the guys on the teams and, you know, that's that's a perfect example of of a unit that can solve problems very quickly and rapidly. They can adjust based on, you know, what the enemy's doing and make changes very quickly versus, you know, more conventional units that are stuck doing things because this is the way we've always done it. Absolutely. You know? So, yeah. uh, you know, that mission in itself happening in the daylight, it, it's interesting because there are a lot of things in the movie that, you know, obviously – I wish it were a whole story and not just the story. Right. Of, it gets bastardized for know, Hollywood of just two days, you know, that happened, but all the missions that we did leading up to that were very successful. And most people don't even know that we did, you know, seven other missions and they were all very successful. And we did a lot of other things too, that, that, uh, that people don't necessarily know about. And I'm not going to talk about, but um, you know, it would be, it would be cool to have seen some of that being portrayed a little 
a little bit more, not just here's, and I understand for a movie, you've got to condense something into sure, 90 yeah, minutes or, yeah. you know, an hour and but, 45 or something like that. And, but, and to back up what you said, look, and a lot of this is actually recounted in Mark Bowden's book, Black Hawk Down. It, it gives you a lot greater background and a lot greater detail. And uh, to, to your point, every mission you had run prior to the events of Black Hawk Down were all night missions. They were, you, you use the night to your advantage and your night vision goggles and your ability to, to have that strategic advantage over your enemy to your to your best use. And, and going into the Bakara market in the middle of the day, uh, you know, at that point in time in the afternoon, uh, for those who are familiar with the with the drug Kat, K-A-T, it's a, an opium-based drug that a lot of the locals there use. To, it's almost like a cocaine that would get them all agitated and fired. I mean, all the, all the odds were against you in that attack. And and something else I'd like to point out is that, you know, this was a very free flowing thing. Our our platoon specifically, um, you know, and this this plays into the bigger political picture, at least in the Rangers at the time. Our platoon was not a a vehicle platoon. OK, so we were a jump clearing team. So for airfield seizures, we were the ones that jumped and the two other platoons were the ones that would man vehicles and establish blocking positions and things along those lines. So we showed up in Mogadishu and things switched because our company commander and my platoon leader, Larry Moores, who was a former enlisted guy from first Ranger battalion and squad leader in first Ranger battalion, he and uh, the company commander did not get along. So the company commander, put us on what he saw as the least sexy of the missions, which was, okay, you guys will just be blocking positions and uh, you'll be the ground force and we'll get to do the cool stuff. And, and what he did by doing that, and this is what started to lead to some of the Ranger frustration that, you know, isn't really talked about. And I don't know if it's talked about, no, I've never read the book. Um, But, you know, we were stuck doing a mission that we had never done before in training and we were doing it in combat. We had guys driving with night vision on for the first time in Mogadishu. That is that is the hand, you know, that is the absolute truth. And, uh, you know, so we were very frustrated, our platoon specifically, because here we'd been kind of outcast and and made to do something that we weren't even really prepared to do at any level. And uh, so anyway, that day, you know, you see a scene in the movie where, Hey, get your guys ready. This is a bad area. There was none of that. I didn't get told that. Nobody said, hey, we're going into a bad area. I didn't (laughs) know that there were bad areas of the city or good areas of the city. The only thing that I knew from having been out a number of times, and we had done a daylight mission prior. uh, The only thing I knew was that every time we did something, it it was escalating. You could feel the tension building. Right. I could feel I could feel that as a young specialist. Um, you know, I could tell that every time we roll out and do something, well, you know, first time there's really nothing. And then there's a gunfight and then there's some RPGs and gunfire. And then, you know, it just, you could feel the tension in the people. They weren't happy. We were there, you know, whatever it might be. But anyway, that's probably a little more background than, than what's ever been talked about before. And I was hoping, uh, you know, you may remember this, but soon after we returned in October, we had a couple guys from our company that went on Larry King Live to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And one of those, and, and the most articulate, was Matt Eversman. And, the first you know, ever Matt, guest on the Hazard Ground. Matt, Matt's yeah, a friend of mine, yeah. Yeah, he's a, he's a good buddy of mine still, too. And, uh, you know, I think because Matt 
was was so articulate and explaining some of the things that happened, you know, he was selected as kind of the main ranger character. And one of the things that always bothered me about that, and not not because of anything Matt did, but I was supposed to be on that Larry King show as well. And the guy that we ended up sending in my place, uh, I don't feel like he he spoke at all. And I don't think that he really told the story of, you know, driving around for, I don't know how many hours through ambush after ambush after ambush, um, you know, looking for crash sites, looking for, you know, link up with the other ground force that was out driving around, et cetera, et cetera. That story really never got told. Um, and I, I, I couldn't be on Larry King because uh, another guy that I've recently reconnected with borrowed my class A uniform for one of the memorial services. So when I got back, my class A's were gone. They were out of my wall locker and I had nothing to wear for Larry King. So they sent another guy in my place. Who did they send? Uh, a guy named Dave Ritchie. Okay. All right. I, I mean, I was just curious. It's a uh, look. And, and I say this every time we talk about Black Hawk Down, I talk to one of you guys. I learned something new that I did not know. And I literally have read as much as I possibly could on this book, on this engagement, uh, and have talked to as many people as I have. Uh, everybody from Matt to Mike Durant to, you know, I mentioned John. Uh, why is his last name skipping? The, uh, John Bellman. The... John Bellman. Oh, okay. Yeah, we yeah, talk? yeah, he's a good. He's a good friend too. Yeah, John Bellman. So I mean, it's I've talked to so many people, but everybody has their own angle and their own perspective on on the whole thing. It's always uh, it's always refreshing to hear. All right, um, for if you guys want more on Brad's military background, go back and listen to episode fifty eight because uh, you'll get some more of it there. But I do want to transition to the music portion of things because something you said before really kind of struck a chord with me about how you sort of get out all that dark place in music. And and I'm just curious, you know, when you sit down to write a song and you have these emotions sitting inside you, is it something that flows or do you have to think about it? Do you have to try to return to that place? Give me what's the mental process of going through writing a song about, you know, the dark places that you were and have been and how you communicate that to people through music in a way everybody can understand. Well, it's uh Man, that's it's kind of a long answer. I'm gonna try and condense we, we, we it into time. something. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna try and condense it into something that makes sense because I'll probably contradict myself a number of times. Um, I kind of, I've always connected with music that's darker, and not that you would know that from Barry Manilow and Elton John and all that stuff. But <laughs> as my musical taste shifted. You know, once I picked up a guitar at, at 12 or 13 and, you know, it was now 1981, 82 time frame and uh, I'm getting into music like Rush and ACDC and Black Sabbath and things like that. That's when I really uh, started to connect with some of the darker stuff. And I don't mean like heavier necessarily, but just not not Van Halen, who's also one of my favorite bands. But, you know, they're they're a party fun time. You know, we're cruising down the block, whistling at chicks, partying, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, it really wasn't until Nirvana and Soundgarden and Alice in Chains and specifically Alice in Chains, I connected with probably more with them than any other band ever because I feel like their content is so dark. And a lot of those guys, you know, probably all of them have a trauma and, and knowing that, you know, three of those guys are, are dead now, you know, they're not, no longer with us. Um, you know, they definitely had some trauma and they were able to use that trauma, you know, 
to to make their music as dark as it could be and that's something that i didn't have when i was younger i had a great childhood i had a great upbringing um you know i didn't have that trauma and you know i don't feel like i've had trauma now per se like oh is trauma i'm a victim i'm not i placed myself in the situations that i was a part of i didn't have to be there um but there's definitely you know damage done in terms of what that does to you in your emotional state and how you deal with some of the things that you've seen and the surrealness of it all and anyway i never really tried writing music i i did a little bit but i never tried writing it when i was younger because i don't think that it came from that place and you know fortunately i don't need the use of drugs or you know getting strung out and i wasn't abused as a kid or anything like that um you know i don't have that but now i've got this other dark thing to kind of tap into and uh, one song specifically it's called silence and light and that's how powerful we kind of felt the song was is is it's about contemplation it's about that person that is thinking about making that ultimate step to you know real darkness and committing suicide and it came to me not the lyrics but the music part um i had had a meeting with some friends down in tampa this is kind of a sidebar uh had some meeting with some former unit guys both of them were mogadishu guys mm -hmm. and i set up a dinner and i didn't know that either one of them like had an issue with the other one right um but they had some some long history of not seeing eye to eye on some things that happened that day and i set up a dinner neither one of them knew that the other was going to be there it wasn't by design it just happened that way and over dinner and a few drinks and things like that. And we started talking and I kind of exposed some vulnerabilities of my own, which is kind of the only way to get people to break themselves down is you have to be willing to talk about, you know, some of your faults and weaknesses and things that you're experiencing. And once I kind of broke down that barrier, these guys started to make amends and watching it was, you know, still to this day, one of the most emotional things I've seen because there were years that went by that these guys, you know, had this beef. And it affected me so much that I remember sitting on the plane the next day and I was like, I cannot get home fast enough to pick up that fucking guitar. I need to get home. I like it just this thing was calling me. And I picked up the guitar and that song just spilled out. Like almost verbatim the way that it's been recorded. And it's something that I, I hope that when people hear that song, if they've listened to this and they know the backstory to it, it'll it'll mean that much more to them mm -hmm. because really it's it's not written about me. It's more written about, you know, everybody in general. So I kind of tap into some of that that kind of stuff when I'm writing and it does have a tendency to kind of bring me down a little bit. And my wife knows when I've been creating whatever it might be it's it's like she knows because my mood is a little altered and not not bad i'm not angry or anything like that but just she'll know that i've kind of been thinking about some of those things and i think anybody that's experienced the things that we've experienced could probably cry on a dime you know like oh yeah 
if I if I want to think back to some of the things, I could get very emotional very quickly. It's always right underneath the surface, you know, and that pain is kind of always right underneath the surface. And, you know, it's it's something that it's I don't know, it's very easy for me to kind of tap into, but but not in an unhealthy way. I'm not picking up drugs. I'm not uh, trying to drink my problems away. I, I allow that that rawness and that emotion to come out when it needs to come out. And, you know, not trying to be a tough guy and stick it out and, you know, just deal with things. Um, anyway, now I would, I would challenge anybody who's experienced any trauma, whether it's an EMT that's, you know, dealt with all kinds of medical issues and things like that and death, uh, you know, to a police officer, to veterans, to whomever, man, get into art, right. You know, you can do anything to kind of let these things flow out. And, you know, everybody that's served has that commonality in whatever capacity they served. Being that all five of you guys are, are former special ops guys, uh, can you tell when one of the guys is struggling with something, when one of the other band members is struggling with something? Yeah, now that we've gotten close, you know, closer. Um, yeah, definitely. I can tell. And I'm not going to say who, but there's there's a one guy in particular and I, I know when things are off, I can just kind of tell. And, uh, you know, I do, I do some checking in. I'm not worried about him. He's not, <laughs> he's not, uh, an unstable person in any way, shape or form. So I don't want it to sound that way, but right. you know, I can, I can tell that there's stuff going on and I'll, I'll hit him up and, you know, Hey man, I'm thinking about you today. You know, I love you and super proud of what we'd have accomplished and, and whatever, but you know, um, we're always there for one another. And that's also one of the reasons that we don't have any drama is that we're very direct. Like we don't have a ton of time to do this. And when we do do it, we put 110% into it to, to get it done. So there isn't a whole lot of, uh, you know, my former musical experiences were, were people that were, you know, overly dramatic and passive aggressive and, you know, okay, now you don't want to play that. So you're going to play it wrong and you're going to be a little bitch about it or, you know, whatever that, that kind of thing comes out a lot in, in, in music and in art. And, uh, anyway, we don't have that. There is, there's none of it. What are the characteristics of being a musician that apply to being a Ranger or a Delta guy? Like what can you take from those experiences and apply it to the music world? It's something that I didn't, you know, I knew about myself, right? I always want, people to see the best thing. I always want to present myself as, as best as I possibly can. Uh, music, very much the same way. Music and art, whatever creative thing that you're doing, you're exposing a piece of yourself. And it's a very vulnerable spot. It, it sounds kind of goofy, but it's, you know, it's almost like pulling your dick out and going, okay, is it big enough? Is it, you know, <laughs> it's a very vulnerable. Yeah, I just got out of a cold pool, by the way, you know, but <laughs> I was in the know, pool. It, it's, it's a very vulnerable feeling of, you know, I'm exposing a part of me and are people going to like it? Do they, do they connect with it? You know, is it good? Is it all of that? And, and so one of the things that directly, uh, comes from the type of people that are in special mission units or people that have served that have taken kind of a step beyond is like, I'm never satisfied with where something is, but I have the ability to complete something. And, you know, we could, we could have gone round and round. We could go back to LA and record again. We could do more stuff. We can, you know, we could try and perfect this thing to the nth degree and it'll never get done. 
but at some point you do as good as you possibly can and then you've got to commit and say okay it's as good as we can get it right now the only thing i can do is say the next one i'm going to do this differently that's the only way to accomplish anything and it's something that i really learned through this process from pre-production and kind of getting together and rehearsing and trying to get the songs as good as we could get them you know with the limited amount of time that we have uh to going and recording in LA and having a Grammy award winning producer saying, yeah, man, this is good stuff. You guys brought the goods. Like that was all the validation I needed to more recently. We did a, a private event for, uh, it, it was a benefit show and, and there were a ton of people there and we got to play there. Um, super brief, but people, when they saw us, we're like, man, you guys are the real deal. And we are, you know, it's, I don't, I don't mess around with this. I'm not, you know, 80 percenting it. It's, it's 110% of, you know, my best ability and, uh, and getting good music out there. And the only thing I can do is say next time, you know, I'm going to make some adjustments and can't ever really be completely happy with it. So I've had a ton of people that have hit me up and said, man, I love this song. This thing is awesome. One guy who texted me and said, I was in the gym, this song came on, and literally it was all I could do to not break down. It affected me that greatly. And I that's thought, awesome. man, that, that's amazing that you connected with it. I still hear all the little flaws in the song, <laughs> you know? Well, you hear it so, as a musician. You listen right. differently. So, so, you know, what I'm hearing is is different than what other people are hearing, but... Anyway, I think the, the, the bigger point is like never being 100% satisfied. I know we can do better. And the goal is to do better next time and make it, make it even better than this one. You mentioned that Grammy-winning producer, Josh Goodwin. He's also produced albums for Celine Dion, Justin Bieber, and Maroon 5. Uh, so he's clearly qualified. Um, by the way, rock music from Celine Dion and Justin Bieber, we, we, we have some questions. But um, all, all kidding aside... <laughs> When you get with a guy like that, that level, I mean, look, when you're in the special operations community, yes, there are guys who know more than you, but there's a general level of respect that you're all the same, right? It's kind of like being a Hall of Famer. There's no such thing as like a bottom-end Hall of Famer. You're either in the Hall of Famer or you're not, right? So either right. in the special ops community or you're not. So there's a general sort of feeling within the community that everybody is on the same level, but Josh Goodwin clearly was on a level above you. So how do all of you guys, these hardcore type A personalities who have lived in that realm deal with a guy when he walks into a room like that? So uh, two, two answers here. Um, one, we earned his respect and we earned his respect by how much work we put into it and how prepared we were okay. and our work ethic in the studio. That guy is tier one of, of his industry, right? right. He is <laughs> the same qualities that it takes to be a tier one guy in the military. Yep. It takes to be a tier one guy in, in the music industry. It takes to be an actor. It takes to be et cetera, right? It's the same, same personality. So I've, I've befriended and become friends with some, some very well-known people. And, uh, one of them, you know, in the, in the past two years, uh, a good buddy of mine, Tom Hardy, the actor, and he and I clicked immediately. We met, and we clicked and we've kept in touch. And, you know, that guy is every bit, it's a, it's the same personality. He's got the same drive that guys at Delta have. It's the same thing. He's just doing it in a different format. 
And, you know, that's that's something that I recognize CEOs have that same drive and desire, right? Like people that are absolutely crushing it. It becomes your passion. It's your life. It's your everything. And, uh, you know, I think when Josh saw that, and to his credit, he could have half-assed us all day long. He could have said, yeah, you guys are this low-hanging thing, you know. I don't need to put my whole effort into this. That's not what he did. That guy worked every bit as hard as we did in the studio. And you're talking like 20, 22 hour days. And he didn't ever half-ass anything during that entire process. So nothing but nothing to props to him for being a true pro. And he's a veteran too. So, you know, he, he gets it, but he believes in what we're saying. He believes in our message. He believes in our music. And I think that that's, a very important part of the whole story. Compare the feelings for me. Finishing an op that goes nearly flawless and everybody does what they're supposed to and you get off the op and you get back home versus finishing that first album that you guys did together in Silence and Light. Uh, It's very much similar, right? So that near-perfect op, what people don't see in the movies is... The next morning, after we get a couple hours of sleep and everybody gets some food, uh, we get up and do a hot wash. And we talk yep. about, okay, this is what happened. Uh, this is what went well. This is what we could have improved upon. This is what, you know, the one thing that we did fuck up. This is what we're going to fix. This is how we're going to do it better next time. It's exactly the same thing. That's kind of what I'm saying is, you know, I hear these songs and I'm like, ah, man, if we'd only added this one thing or we just didn't have enough time to do this part better. Um, you know, I, I think anybody that has that type of personality is going to do the same thing. It's never just good enough, you know. Um, so I'm, I'm happy that people like it. I'm happy that people are all digging it. And everybody that heard it hasn't said, eh, you know, every had a positive reaction to it. And for the most part, it's just about getting the word and message out to people that, Hey, you can download this thing. It's available on iTunes, Spotify, Apple music, uh, CDs will be available soon on Amazon music on demand. So if that's your format, you can get it that way, but it's, it's available just about everywhere. December 20th is when the entire album goes live. Brad, I know you do this because you want to give back, but I, I guess this is a devil's advocate question. If if your music never affected anybody in that way, when you talk about veterans and, and the things that are boiling under the surface with us, would do you think you'd still have something to write about? Do you think you'd still be a musician? Yeah, I just think I would be a more shallow musician. Interesting. In, in, in a way that just you do it for music and money or whatever, as opposed to a, a greater purpose? I don't know if I would have picked up on the greater purpose thing. And I think that that's something that comes from service, right? You understand Mm -hmm. that, that you're here fulfilling a greater role, you know, and it's kind of the same attitude. Like when I was in Delta, you know, it's a struggle just to stay there. Right. People ask me all the time, wow, you must feel such a sense of accomplishment because you made it like, yeah, made it through the door you know, to have the opportunity to serve there doesn't mean you stay there for 12 years just because you made it through the door. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that I don't know. I feel like there's, there's something more to that. You know, I, I feel the same way with music. It's, it's something I would have done just because I loved it. But now that I'm able to do it in a much deeper and 
in a way that maybe can touch more people or help people, the sense of purpose that I feel from that is is gigantic. And it's not a responsibility that I'm taking lightly or any of us are taking lightly. You know, I feel like I'm a representative to the music industry uh, and to anybody that hears our songs. Or I feel like I am a representative of the community. And it's not me. It's not me doing this for ego. I don't, I don't, you know, even when we played live, as soon as we got off that stage, it was like, yep, this was out of tune. We got to fix this for next time. This was fucked up. Uh, this was great. I love it. We had a great time, but we got to fix it for next time. I, I never, never kind of enjoy the moments uh, the same way when I was at Delta, right? You can never really fully enjoy it because you're just trying to stay there. You're just trying to do your best every day. And maybe your best isn't good enough, you know? No, I mean, listen, I, I think that there's a lot of value in what you just said. There's a lot of different motivations for why we do what we do. And, and to find one that sort of speaks to you beyond just your love for music and your love for playing music, I, I think certainly brings it to a, a whole different spot. Um, to that end, you know, you do actually have two charities that you guys contribute um, sales from your music to Warriors Heart and Marine Raider Foundation. Take a second. Just tell us what those are. Yeah, so uh, Warriors Heart, it's it's something. And initially, when we stood this thing up, we kind of wanted each band member to have, you know, something that he represented based on, you know, where he served and who he wanted to contribute to. And we, it kind of got to the point where we're just, you know, it's kind of got too watered down. And, you know, let's just pick two and we can adjust those next year. We might contribute to two different ones. But Warrior's Heart is a, is a physical facility that's in Texas. And they're talking about putting more in other states, uh, maybe in the Northeast, where there's a huge conglomeration of, you know, police and folks that, that need help. But they, they basically, you know, help people that are struggling with PTSD. And they do it. One of the things that connects with me and that I love about it is they they do a lot of this through art, whatever it might be. You might weld a, a sculpture. You might be able to paint. You might be able to do whatever. Um, and there's there really is this healing power to creativity. And uh, it's something that they've exposed and are using, and it's helped a bunch of guys. So it's, uh, it was started by a, f a fellow former unit member, Tom Spooner. And uh, I applaud him for everything he's done with that. And we felt, you know, very near and dear to that, that it was going. And it's not just veterans. It's first responders. It's anybody that's struggling with PTSD. Uh, and the other is Marine Raider Foundation, which uh, Tyson, my my uh, kind of my right hand man with everything banned. Um, he's from that community. He's a former Marine Raider and, you know, worked for a short period of time at the Marine Raider Foundation, uh, you know, kind of helping bring in funds and things like that. So it was near and dear to him and we wanted to be able to contribute to that. But that's something that directly helps family members. You know, if, if a Marine Raider is killed, you know, that's assistance that's going to pay for flights for family members or hotel or, you know, whatever it can do to help. Uh, you know, so those are the two that we're contributing to currently. What do you miss most about the special operations community? And is there anything about the band that sort of fills that void? Yeah, man, that's, that's, you know, what we've done and we joke about this, but like we've created our own little squad and <laughs> it's very true. We, the dynamic is very much the same. You know, we, we've got an air force guy, so he's always the brunt of every joke. 
and every, every, everything is teasing him about the Air Force, just like it would be if we were, you know, kind of doing this for real. Um, yeah, the camaraderie, man, that's I think even one of the reasons that I ended up in the service was I just love this small group camaraderie thing. I'm not good in uh, in big crowds. I don't I don't like uh, interacting with a ton of people. I like having my little posse and and being like kind of the little ringleader in, in my posse. And that's effectively what I've done here is, you know, create this. But we're all equal partners. We're all, you know, equal say and everything else. It's not me uh, being the being the ringleader of it all. Uh, probably the wrangler. I'm probably the person that just kind of wrangles it all and, and gets it to make it happen. But uh, anyway, everybody is giving their best and doing their best. And it's just like a team. You know, if somebody's not cutting it with something, you know, we kind of have a conversation of like, hey, we need to step this up and this is where we need to be and this is how we can make it better. And no one is thin skinned. We've all come from that community. So we know that when something needs to be fixed, it's just like counseling, like, hey, you fuck this up, do better next time. You know, and if you can't correct it, then there are going to be some actions taken. Not that it's gotten to that point, but, you know, it's the same thing. We, we get together and we're working on a song. And, uh, you know, again, it's like, ah, like this is what needs to happen to make it, you know, to fix it and make it better. Right. There's not a mm -hmm. ton of drama and, uh, you know, 40 hours of going back and forth or which sounds better or which whatever. At some point it has to just move forward. But. Anyway, yeah, we, we've definitely become like our own little small team and we all like cherish that bond. It, it you know, if there's a brotherhood and there's an em energy and, and chemistry when we're together that I think when people see us live, they'll definitely pick up on. What's next for the band? You guys just finished recording your first album. So what's up next? What do we do? So album actually drops uh, December 20th. So it's taken us from... January to get that all mixed and mastered and everything else. Uh, that's a whole other educational piece in itself, but just the duration of time that it takes that just because you record something doesn't mean it's ready and things have right. to be edited and et cetera, et cetera. So December 20th, this thing goes live. There are three singles up now and they're at all the, all the normal music places you can find them. Um, what's next is talking with live nation about some shows and, and plan some shows in different areas that we know would be easy for us to support. You know, we're not looking to be on tour for nine months of the year. Nobody can really support that and it doesn't really pay. So it's not something that we could do, you know, to be lucrative. We have day jobs. We have things that we love and do already. Uh, most of us are doing things for the community already. And um, anyway, so we definitely want to be out and play some shows and play some festivals and things like that. So this coming 2020, we'll, we'll do another album. We'll record another album. Uh, most of that's already written. And we're just kind of doing the rehearsing for that and also rehearsing for set lists so that when we play live, we know exactly what we're going to do and, and uh, how it's all going to play out. But expect people to see us playing live different places. And we'll obviously broadcast that, you know, every way we can through our social media and through other things and uh you know let people know so that they can attend and, and check it out well, i also want to be able to uh you know they do musicians do these like vip meet and greets and I, i'd like to do something like that except obviously it's not a vip thing but i'd love to be able to just go hang with uh with you know people that like our music and that want to connect and maybe want to talk about their struggle or whatever I'd, I'd very much like to do that so 
I'm, I'm not looking to be a, a diva and sit backstage and have people not look at me because I'm getting ready to perform or something. But, you know, I'd very much like to be able to interact with people and uh, meet and talk with them. Well, when you guys come through Atlanta, I'd like some backstage passes. I'm not bashful about it. <laughs> so, uh, that said, uh, listen, man, it's been great catching up with you. Uh, I certainly uh, have enjoyed your journey. Uh, I'm a big fan of the music, a big fan of the mission that you guys are undertaking. And uh, certainly everything you've done in your military career uh, has been well chronicled. But this is any time you can double down post-military career and have something that's it's as good, if not better, than what you did while you were in the service, uh, I'm always – you know, appreciative of folks who can do that because listen, retirement after the military is, is kind of like retirement, right? I mean, that's the point of it. You've done your, you've run your race, you've done your job and now it's time to kick back and, and totally shift gears. But the fact that you're still in the fight, it, just in a different manner, I think is, is fantastic. Yeah. It's something that, you know, it's just like in a military unit, like there's a whole support network of people that make stuff happen behind the scenes. And, you know, to see it really is like, it takes a village and, you know, I'm as proud of this as I am for any mission that I've been a part of or any, you know, very well-known missions that I've been a part of or whatever. I'm as proud of this as, as anything else that I've done. And, you know, we, we all feel the same way. Well, Brad, again, it's been a pleasure catching up with you. I want you to enjoy the holidays uh, with the family. And again, looking forward to uh, you guys getting out uh, wherever you end up. Uh, but certainly if you come here to Atlanta, look me up and uh, I'd love to catch up over a, over a drink or a meal or whatever. But uh, again, I wish you nothing but the best. And thanks for your continued service to uh, veterans through your music. And certainly thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. For sure, man. I'm actually going to be passing through Atlanta next week, so we can chat afterwards. But appreciate you having us on and you having this mechanism for people to hear stuff and connect with because that's equally you know as important as anybody that's out there fundraising or anything else that, how do you get that message out? And, uh, you know, having formats like this are absolutely crucial to guys like me being able to, you know, get that word out. So I, I appreciate it. We all appreciate it very much. Thank you. Brad Thomas, thanks for being here. Yeah, man. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.